Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hi everyone, I'm Alexa Clay, the RSA's US Director, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to today's event, celebrating global innovations and good work. This event kicks off the Future of Work Summit, a week of talks, debates, and workshops exploring solutions to the challenges of a rapidly changing world of work. From new approaches to skills, training, and lifelong learning, to new policies designed to strengthen economic security, worker voice, and power. Today, we've gathered together a brilliant panel of global good work innovators, and I'm excited to hear from them about the new ventures and initiatives that they've been involved in pioneering that offer hope that good work, secure, fair, fulfilling, dignified, and purposeful work can be brought within the reach of many more people worldwide. In today's event, we're going to hear short scene-setting statements from each of our panelists in turn, and then we'll have a conversation together, picking up on some of the areas of shared interest and concern emerging from their opening insights and stories. For everyone watching, I hope the session will provide lots of inspiration and practical examples of innovation and best practice that you'll be keen to share with your networks. If you're interested in finding out more about the RSA's Future of Work research agenda and opportunities to join our Good Work Guild, please do check out the links in the YouTube chat. You can also get involved in the conversation on Twitter throughout the summit week. The hashtag is RSA Good Work, and we're really looking forward to hearing from you. So let's get started. First up, it's my great pleasure to introduce you to Leticia Vitad. Leticia is a leading author and speaker on the future of work and consumption. She consults, teaches, and writes widely, and is an influential observer of future of work trends, often bringing a feminist perspective to her analysis. Leticia, welcome. It's been an incredibly disruptive year for work and workers. You spoke in the RSA virtual stage about a year ago during the first waves of the crisis. How have you observed debates and policy priorities shifting since then? Thank you, Alexa. Hi, everyone. Yes, you're right. There have been like a lot of discussions about the future of work since the beginning of, uh, of the pandemic and, and probably more than ever before in my lifetime. And um, it, the, the, as the pandemic accelerated a number of trends and transition, including a transition to a new techno-economic paradigm, um, We've we've experienced different waves, not just of the pandemic, but different waves of future of work debates, um, all of which illustrate different trends, different problems, different shifts um, related to work. I've identified many, but I'll, I'll sum them up in, in the five main waves that I've identified since the beginning of the pandemic. The very first wave started immediately after the beginning of the first lockdown. Uh, you may remember, it came as a surprise, and there were all these talks about essential workers, uh, in particular nurses, um, in the NHS nurses, uh, but nurses everywhere were you know, applauded um, in a lot of different countries, but also supermarket and warehouse um, employees, infrastructure workers, delivery people, and the like. And 
It was suddenly said that these were the most exposed workers, um, exposed to the virus. They, um, at the time, the problem was that some of them didn't have enough protection, uh, PPE equipment in particular, but also the most exposed economically. Um, and, and some of them um, lost their jobs abruptly for, for one reason, reason or the other. And at the same time, it was seen that they were the least valued in society. Essential workers are the ones the least paid. And so that was really the first debate that raged in a lot of different countries. It led to discussions about value, the value of work, about bullshit jobs and essential work, um, and also about the rift between working between work from home people and frontline workers. Uh, it was seen that it's not just pay uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's an important subject, but also um, being able to work from home that adds like another layer of inequalities. So that was the first wave. The second wave um, occurred a little bit later, I would say, but it may vary from place to place. But the second wave of discussions concerned automation. Um, and uh, it really took up in a lot of companies because the pandemic uh, gave them more reason to automate. Sometimes those were good reasons, um, as you know, people were trying to avoid contact uh, and more things were automated for that reason. And so it went that this, this old, very old debate about the impact of machines, uh, AI and automation kind of... Um, became even more um, topical. And it was not just a debate about whether more jobs would be destroyed and there would be more unemployment, but a debate also about the quality of jobs, of those jobs that remained uh, as a result of automation. And in particular, algor the algorithmic management that some workers find even more alienating and uh, gig workers were a good case in point, uh, Uber and, and, and or rather uh, Deliveroo um, uh, riders uh, are just examples of those of those people. And so these, this, this all debate between techno optimists and techno pessimists, the Luddites, um, in this old debate, what happened, what changed was that the pessimists suddenly have the upper hand now and were a bit more cautious. It's also a good opportunity in this wave to analyze the impact with a little more nuance and, and, and to be cautious and to be aware of ethical, social and economic consequences of this form of automation. The third wave, um, perhaps I should go a little bit faster, that concerned the impact of the pandemic on women's work. And the phrase, you remember the phrase, she session was coined late in the spring of 2020. And uh, suddenly there were all these figures about all these women who lost their jobs. Some of them didn't actually lose them, but had to leave their jobs. Because, oh, surprise, when you close schools and when you, and when you have no childcare, the burden of childcare and uh, domestic work, unpaid domestic work, falls disproportionately on women and mothers in particular. Um, not that it wasn't a surprise to, for most women or mothers, but uh, some people seem to suddenly realize that things hadn't changed as much as they thought they had. Um, so this, this, um, this led to further discussions about what constitutes infrastructure 
and what makes work possible. With this idea uh, that's now defended in, in the US by the Biden government that yes, childcare is infrastructure because without it, millions of uh, workers will have to leave paid work to do unpaid work. Um, and so I would say that was like a, 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 a fantastic opportunity to move forward in that debate about what constitute infrastructure and perhaps we'll discuss it. We could add healthcare, of course, to that list of indispensable infrastructure. The fourth, um, the fourth wave is related to the great and, and incredibly fast acceleration of the digital transition, transition of the whole economy. And as lots of sectors and companies face uh, bankruptcy or, or you know, risk becoming completely irrelevant, this leads to questions, uh, to lots of questions about the future of various sectors and jobs and discussions about professional transitions, lifelong training, uh, universal basic income, um, unemployment benefits. And, and the, the, uh, the novelty this year was that there was this huge experiment um, in, in the US for the first time. There was a form of UBI of universal basic income that was part of the package, of the support package. Um, in Europe, in most European countries, there were, there were forms of unemployment benefits for the self-employed. Uh, which had never been the issue before. So, you know, suddenly questions about what makes a proper safety net when more and more people are not, you know, classical employees with um, uh, subordination and, and wages and, and job security. And so that was, that was like, uh, yeah, lots of new questions about the safety net. And yet we also realized that that wasn't enough because millions of people fell through the cracks of the safety net. They were kind of, they couldn't be reached or they wouldn't be reached or simply they didn't fit the existing boxes and received nothing. And it was not just a marginal, it was not just the marginal few, but literally millions of people who weren't helped, even though the safety net, the safety net was made more generous than ever. Um, last but not least, the fifth wave, we're still in it, concerns, um, you know, debates about hybrid work, office work and the future of office real estate and all its challenges. So it's, it's um, really targeted at office workers and, and, and as companies suddenly realize that the nine to five rigidity of office work is not sustainable anymore, um, office workers will expect more flexibility and autonomy at work, but what will that look like? What will hybrid look like? Um, how can we alleviate all the problems that come with office work and hybrid work and digital work, mental health problems, Zoom fatigue, um, the blurring of the lines between private and, and professional, um, uh, online harassment, lack of inclusion, et cetera, et cetera. How will it be negotiated? How will it be negotiated between managers who want more office work and employees who want less of it, who want more flexibility? Um, who will negotiate it? How will that happen? Um, what will the office of tomorrow look like? And yes, there will be less of it. Uh, and will it just be the place for the childless and, and men? Or will it be a place that's inclusive and that, you know, that has all the workers in it? Um, lots of sub questions like what's the future of business travel? 
you could add in that fifth wave. So basically, those are the yeah the five the five different debates, and of course they're you know, it didn't happen in that chronological order, not everywhere in the same way, but perhaps you've identified all of those questions in your own countries and situations as well. Wonderful, thank you, Leticia. For me, that was just so cathartic to hear uh, the five waves captured so succinctly in terms of what we've all been wrestling with uh, in the world of work for the past year. So thank you for that. I wanna pick up on some of those themes in the open discussion, particularly how some of these solutions, how we can embed more systemically some of these solutions that came as a result of crisis management. Uh, but first, uh, delighted to be joined by Thorben Albrechts. Thorben is the policy director of IG Metal, the German metal workers trade union, where he represents the interests of more than 2 million members to political institutions in Berlin and Brussels. A former member of the International Labor Organization's Global Commission on the Future of Work, Thorben has been involved in developing many significant pro-worker policies, including a role in the introduction of the statutory minimum wage in Germany. Thorben, it's great to have you with us today to share your observations around how work and workers have been affected over the last year by the pandemic and your thoughts on the sorts of collective action and policy innovation we need in response. Over to you. Thank you, Alexa, and hello to everybody and happy to join this conversation. And actually, I want to pick up the last point that Tizia made, um, the fifth wave she talked about. Um, we've seen this acceleration of trends in the pandemic and one being the increase of um, <clears throat> remote work. But um, this is, of course, only true for office workers. So what we've seen that in the sectors I represent, in the automotive sector, for example, um, you have part of the workers uh, on the shop floor working in the production lines, and you have others working uh, usually in offices and then a lot from home. And we had a collective bargaining round last year. So we had to find new ways also to go on strike. And uh, what we did um, was to try to strike at the factory as well as online. Um, if we have uh, the access to the communication nets of the companies, of course, we could use this. Office workers, even when they were at home working remote, could put up virtual signs saying, I'm on strike and not answer emails, not uh, join conversations. And that's what we, uh, what we did at the strike. But of course, in a strike, you need solidarity and you have to organize this between the different types of workers. And what we usually do would we assemble the workers from the production lines, from the offices, from the warehouses, and they meet in front of the factory gate. Also, this was not possible during the pandemic, of course. So we did online events also, also to get together on site and remote workers. And I think we proved that a hybrid strike and some other unions uh, as well proved that a hybrid strike online and offline on site and online is possible. And I think that um, was an encouraging example that you can use the tools that are changing the world of work also to strengthen workers' voice. When we look now what's likely to happen um, after the pandemic, and that has also been mentioned already, I think that hybrid work for office workers um, is here to stay. Workers will part-time work at offices and part-time work from home. Um, but we've also seen what full-time working at home 
looks like. And I think there are some dangers to that. And again, Letitia already mentioned some of them. But I want to highlight another point, which sometimes I think is kind of a blind spot in the debate about remote work. Um, that is that the danger of outsourcing and offshoring office work um, is real. Because, of course, if you can do your tasks in the suburb of Berlin, working for a Berlin enterprise, you could also do it in the suburb of Lisbon or um, somewhere else on the, on the globe. And I think this danger is real. And I think this might um, increase the trend we already see to a platformization of work, to, to crowding out geek uh, work, also much more administrative work than we've seen that um, before. And I think that the task now for people who want to give workers a voice, both trade unions and new actors, and I see a lot of new actors emerging, but I also see trade unions changing and adapting, is what might seem contradictory on the, on the first hand, because it, I think it's the task to keep good jobs um, inside of enterprises, preventing platformization, fighting sometimes platforms, merging and um, taking over from a better paid and more secure job. And at the same time, um, we have to organize uh, to make platforms fairer. And uh, that is what IG Metall is also doing. Um, we're trying to represent crowd workers. Um, for example, we have a group of people who upload videos on YouTube and make at least part of their living for it. And we organize to have them um, join together and then face uh, Google and uh, YouTube on the, on the um, terms of the platform. And I think this kind of action is needed much more in the future. We also uh, negotiated a code of conduct with several uh, platforms that are active in, in Germany, crowd working platforms, and created an ombudsperson to um, have some of the if there are conflicts to, to find ways of solution between the people working on the platforms and the platforms itself. And I think this is an important field for um, all organizations and want to give a stronger voice to the workers. So I think we have to be active on site and online for good work in the future. And we also, and I think that is important and sometimes overlooked, have to create solidarity within and between different types of workers, because I think we will see much more differentiated worlds of work, probably diff very different from each other. And um, we need the solidarity to, on the one hand side, defend existing workers' rights, but also um, create new rights and fight for new rights and, and access to the communication networks of both platforms, but also usual companies, the, the email, the intranet, the Slack conversation. This has to be open to trade unions and workers' representatives to reach out to workers that cannot be reached any longer in an office or uh, on the shop floor. So I think promotion of the goal of good work in a changing and diversified world of work, that is um, the issue if we want to make sure that workers' voice is not lost over the changes we're facing. Wonderful, thanks, Thorben. And you know, particularly in the US right now, we're seeing this kind of revival in, in unions and organizing. And so just really curious to get your thoughts there later in the discussion in terms of a European perspective and some of the new actors that you're seeing emerge. 
Uh, next, we turn to Christelle Laudrup Spleet. Christelle is an anthropologist and, like Thorben, is involved in union in innovation. She's a qualitative consultant for HK Labs, an in house laboratory, the first of its kind at one of Denmark's largest unions, where her work is focused on involving current and potential members in the design and co creation of new products, services based on their needs, and emerging work trends shaping the labor market. Welcome, Christelle. It's great to have you with us to highlight a few of these key trends and challenges and the work you're doing to make sure we harness technology to empower rather than exploit workers. Over to you. Thank you, Alexa. Um, yeah, I'm from the a union in Denmark called HK. We are the second largest in Denmark and uh, we have around 225,000 workers organized. And I think one trend I will discuss today, we of course have seen all the same as you all addressed until now, but I want to talk about automation, which is still an upcoming thing and it's affecting our members uh, quite a lot. It's estimated that 40% of our members' work will be automated, sorry, yes. Uh, which is both a challenge because what will the new jobs be for our members? How can they adapt? Will they just sit back while the train just continues without them? Or how can we empower them to participate in all this uh, new uh, transformation that is happening? So, but it also is it's a, a possibility to, to to emerge new jobs, to participate in new ways. Um, a lot of our members, they do administrative work, which is quite rep repetitive, you know, doing the same work over and over again. There's a lot of form filling, which is being automated. And so we tried to work on how can we help our members to participate. And one thing we do is partnerships with, for example, the municipal municipality of uh, Vipo, uh, the employers of a lot of our workers. And we try to map out, okay, in this uh, automation process or project, what kind of roles are there and which can be, be taken on upon of our, our members. And we mapped out five, role, five roles. There is the one doing all the code work of these robots. And there are the ones being specialists about this special work task that is being automated, which is of course our members. They know it from the start to the beginning and everything that needed to be known. And then there is of course the process owner and there's a process specialist. So we try to work with our members to figure out what are the needs, what are the challenges, why don't they participate or uh, tell their boss, oh, I want to be a part of this. And there is a saying, and it may be part-time true, that they, they, they are afraid of this change. They're afraid of to adapt to this, but that's not what we experience. Uh, on the other hand, it's like the opposite. They, they really want to participate, but they don't know how to. They don't have the knowledge to be a part of this. And they, some of them feel like the management is only picking out workers who they may have a better relationship to or they are more, more um, speaking up, so to say. So we have developed a, a course together with our members to, to give them a chance to show their management, I am eager to participate in this optimization, which has, we have been testing out and now it's in the process of being rolled out and, and scaled for a bigger um, part of our members than just one small case, which has turned out really great. And we see a lot of our members actually being a part of these uh, automation automation projects. 
And another thing I wanted to, to highlight today is we also use technologies within the union to reach a new audience. Our young members, uh, there are less young members being a part of a union in Denmark. Uh, I think that's the same for the other unions as well. If I remember the, my numbers correct, it's like about 17% is under 30 in HK, which is quite a small amount. And we, of course, have problems with young workers under 18. They're being cheated from the right salary, or if they are sick, they are told to find their own replacement, which is not allowed for the for the management to, to put on their shoulders. So we tried to figure out how can we reach this group. We have a hotline, of course, like everyone else, but we could see the hotline uh, focused on these young working part-time workers. There were only um, a few calling in, and mostly it were their moms calling in, asking what are the working rights for my son or my daughter. So we wanted to reach the young workers themselves. So we created a chatbot. It's a classic one, but it's really helpful. And we, uh, we put it in Messenger where all the young people there are already. So there was useful to them on their mobile to find this Messenger app. And then we tried to put in all these rules. What will they ask about? It was sickness. And I think we, we launched it in two years ago, maybe the first time. And it was a heating wave in Denmark. So a lot of young workers wanted to ask, do I get off work if it's too warm? But no, you don't. Uh, but it turned out like we, we reached about 500 young people within the first three weeks, if I remember correctly. And to compare that, we, we reached 150 moms, all working people in a year, the year before that. So it was really a big success in getting into the to the young people and telling them about their working rights, getting them interested in what rights do I have and and why do I need to to be organized in a union? Um, so that's just an example of how we also used this digitalization within a union to reach a new group. <laughs> that was a speed talk. Sorry. <laughs> no, that was great, Crystal. <laughs> that's my just... specialty. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful to hear your perspective and, and fascinating about this, the new tool, tools that you guys are developing and, and just how you're catering to, to youth and, and making young people aware of their rights and, and worker power. Uh, Want to turn now, we're delighted to be joined from Cape Town by Chimunya Hamukoma. Chimunya, who also goes by Chipo, is an economist and policy strategist with Pan-African experience in helping governments and organizations develop dynamic strategies in complex situations. Her current role is a research manager at the Harambe Youth Employment Accelerator, which focuses on creating earning and learning opportunities for Africa's burgeoning youth population, centering the African story and discussions around the future of work. Wonderful to have you with us today, Chipo, and over to you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, oh, it's been such a delight to get into these conversations and also really interesting to hear from like such a different geographical and geopolitical perspective. I am going to share my screen with you because I have two slides to share. So if you can see my screen, um, also, I think like if you're also a little bit geographically challenged as I am, it's not exactly obvious. Um, what's on the screen right now. But if you do happen to be someone who's a little bit more geographically savvy, then it's quite clear that we are looking at a map of China 
and Africa in the year 2000 and the year 2100, um, looking at the percentage of the world's working age population that's represented in both regions. I think it's kind of, actually, I think it's really important in the conversation about the future of work to take geography and numbers into account. So if we look at China, um, in 2000, China stood at 23% of the world's working age population with Africa at 11%. In 2020, that number dropped to 20% for China and increased to 14.8% for Africa. And by 2100, those numbers will drop to 9% for China and Africa will rise to 42%, which is over four times um, what will be the working age population that will be in China at that time. And this is really something that's quite important to highlight because when we look at the size of China and Asia more broadly's working age population, the large number of young people in work has been one of the core fueling factors of what we understand the economy to be in the 20th century and of how we understand our economic system right now. Um, and with the truth in demographics, those numbers are going to change by 2100 and we'll be living in quite a vastly different world. Um, so when we're thinking about the future of work, it's important to think about the future of work from an African perspective as well, because if we have a context where nearly 40, over 40% 40 of the world's working age population doesn't have an equitable or easy direct path to work, then as a global community, um, we'll be in a problem. So yeah, in the South African context, we have a little bit of experience in that arena, um, because for us, 70% of new entrants into the workplace don't have a clear access and path to jobs. And honestly speaking, it's something that is quite messy when it comes to our economy and complex in terms of navigating a structure that doesn't harness the power of its young people. Um, and that's where we found ourselves as Harambi when we started our journey 10 years ago with a problem that millions of young men and women had no line of sight to opportunities. Um, and in our first 10 years, that's what we focused on, trying to figure out and trying to optimize the system for the millions of young men and women, trying to give them a leg up to see and access those opportunities. Um, our focus was on direct intervention and work readiness for young people. And from a sort of more broad economic perspective, helping um, organizations in the formal sector economy understand the barriers that they had to inclusive hiring and what we could do to remove those. Um, and if, yeah, that was actually something that worked quite well for us as an organization. And we were able um, to help thousands of young people access um, work opportunities over that period. But, um, and this is, I think, quite pivotal to the African story over times, that in a context where just in South Africa alone, one million young people are entering the workforce every year, helping thousands isn't enough to fundamentally change the system. And so we've decided as an organization and we're shifting our view into a more systems change dynamic, um, looking at how we can use technological innovation the scaling power of government, um, the formal sector drive, and the promise of the informal sector to try to create system-wide change. Um, and so from the technological perspective, um, we've created a platform, a cell phone-based platform um, that connects young people to earning and learning opportunities that are geographically specific. It's zero rated. So any young person anywhere in South Africa can access um, this platform. The platform has also been adopted in our work with government as so we've also been chosen as the manager of the South African youth platform and it's been adopted as part of the president's youth employment intervention as one of his fundamental promises and ways to try to increase youth employment 
across the country. And we're also trying to work on making sure that government stipended programs and government um, funded work opportunities are available to young people where they are and they can have direct access to those. So in the formal economy, we're continuing to support businesses in their drive um, to remove barriers to inclusive hiring and trying to focus in particular on sectors that have high growth potential and figure out what stops them from hiring young people in South Africa and removing those barriers so that they can get young people in jobs. Um, and in the informal sector, which is like an area that's quite new to us, we are trying to understand how young people through their own agency can create sustainable income over time. Um, and yeah, thus far for us as an organization, we've been able to help 1.4 million young people in our network um, and, help, and, and help within that over 500,000 access work opportunities. And we think that by focusing on systems change, we can grow those numbers even further over the next five years to get to a point where we have 3 million um, young people in our work, um, in our network, and 1 million young people who have sustained increase in income over that time. And it's also really exciting to be here and part of the, this conversation because we hope that the learning and the experiences that we have can translate to outside of our context and that we can also learn from you in terms of like, what are ways that make this easier and more reasonable in achieving like system change over like a large space. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chipa. That was really inspiring. And, you know, it's something we talk about at the RSA through our future work program all the time is how, how can you sort of drop the hat of just being an entre entrepreneur and become more of a, a systems change maker. And so it's great to see how you guys have made that pivot and, and want to explore that a little bit more in the discussion, especially how you found it working, working with government. Um, you know, to scale what you're doing and getting out of just that 1000 person cohort model to actually trying to service the uh, service, the 1 million kind of youth who are entering employment. Uh, next, we're going to turn over to Christina Koklau. Christina is an internationally recognized thought leader in the future of work and workers and the politics of digital organizing. Uh, she's an advocate for worker voice. She created the Why Not Lab as a dedication to improving workers' digital rights. Christina has extensive global labor union movement experience. She's authored first principles on worker data rights and the ethics of AI. She's a member of many distinguished boards and committees, including the UN Secretary's General Roadmap for Digital Cooperation and the Global Partnership on AI. One of her most recent projects is the Worker Wellbeing app, we clock, which she's going to tell us a little bit about today. Christina, welcome to the panel. Over to you. Thank you, Alexa. And, and whilst I begin to share my screen here as well, because I have a couple of slides, just want a few reflections on, on what my colleagues here have been saying. I mean, there's no doubt about it that COVID, but also, and especially digitalization, is changing fundamentally the world of work. Yet workers are not present in the forefront of government's minds around the, the governance of these technologies. And this is mind boggling to me and has been for a while. And you know, I've even been doing Dead Poet Society speeches in the OECD and elsewhere on you know, the workers. It's as if workers have gone out of fashion, the concept of a worker, it's somebody else, it's not me. And I, I, you know, I'm really astonished and mind boggled by this. So, so having this conversation is absolutely wonderful. Now, in the, the RSA report around this, uh, these themes we're discussing, there's a brilliant chapter on building a field, 
What will it take for social innovations that boost workers' rights in uh, this world of ours? What's needed? And here they point to some very clear and agreeable uh, facts. We need access to finance. Now, everybody who's tried to innovate in the field uh, and not on big tech's terms finds it really hard. There's not that much capital out there to help us sort of do the experimentations, do the failures, adapt, adjust, and design again. <clears throat> There's also a call from the RSA on policy regulation and procurement. How do we make that easier? How can we look at regulatory sandboxing so that we can attempt and dare innovate in the field also of governance, for example? Then the RSA calls for a worker tech ecosystem with a special emphasis here on data trusts. How can governments form data trusts that will enable a more open sharing of data to the benefit of more than just the few? And then lastly, uh, the experiment around open source technologies and tools where workers and innovators can share their ideas and in, in a sense leapfrog into to better environments. And uh, I agree with all of that. And then uh, I want to add a few more flowers uh, and ponds into their field here. And we'll just be spending a little bit of time on that. So one of them for the workers, if we're thinking of innovating to empower workers and not least to break the monopolization of truth that we all are subject to. And I'm saying truth in inverted commas here. Right now, it is those with the data who have the power to create the narrative. You know, Uber is great. Ship's pay, new pay system is fair. Uh, working from home is great or whatever. And somehow we need to, as the workers, as the unions, as the worker collectives, as those advocating for better work, to really, really, really fight back and say, how can we, in a responsible manner, so not by super surveying our members even more, but responsibly gather data so that we can form the narrative, so we can see with our eyes what are the modern conditions of work. And WeClock, which is an app that I co-developed with, with a bunch of other people, does exactly that. It taps into the mobile phone's sensors, there's 14 of them, and gives you the access to the data and allows you to log certain conditions like when did you log into work? When did you go to work? When did you leave? That's an indication of your working time, for example. It gives you, if you're a remote worker, where were you? How far did you travel? It allows you on the Android version to track how often and when do you, during the day do you log into work apps? If you do so at three o'clock in the morning, is there sort of an indication of stress levels here? If you do that and your other colleagues do that, this always on culture, then we're starting getting some stories. But that's great. And when we developed WeClock, it was great. We had lots of beta testing going on and sort of you could see in the workers' eyes who were using this, wow, we didn't realize this, but then what? You get all the workers' data if you're a union, but then you need a data analyst. Now, a lot of unions who are not the big unions, they don't have data analysts. A data analyst is very, very expensive. So how can we create an ecosystem there uh, of uh, trusted data analysts? How can we support sort of the, the uh, activist movement 
in enabling them to understand the data that they are uh, getting in responsible ways. And then this leads me to the legal support. You know, we have data protection laws in Europe, the GDPR, South Africa is also quite a good, strong uh, data protection regulation. And it's like that around the world, some weaker than others, but we still need to know that if we are a progressive movement, are we staying within the law of how we're gathering and using this data? If we're sharing it to an external but trusted data analyst, how do we make sure that we are not breaching fundamental rights, privacy rights of our members? And then lastly, you know, data in itself is a bunch of Excel sheets, uh, which, you know, makes any statistical lesson in school look like, well, um, we need people who know how to visualize this. The imagination to combine our workers' data around working time, around how many hours are there from they left work to they were back at work with, for example, in this COVID situation, COVID risk zones, burnouts, and so on. We need those who can turn these Excel sheets into visualizations that we can then use. So all of that together with the money, with the policies, with the networks and with the tech that the RSA report was, was advocating for is what I would call the, the worker tech network, the ecosystem. This is what we need to really break the monopolization of power of information that we are subject to at the minute and therefore also to break the current commodification of work and workers that is happening. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you, Christina. And before we jump uh, into more of a group conversation, just want to have a quick follow up with you because you brought in the funding piece. And we're having actually a Funder Sandbox event later this week, bringing innovators into conversations with funders to really help, um, you know, create a safe space, uh, not full of power dynamics where people can have these conversations more comfortably. But in terms of your wish list, in terms of some of the concepts that you could help to socialize with funders around, you know, field building, et cetera, you know, what would be on that agenda for you? How do you feel like, you know, funders need to fundamentally change some of their habits and behaviors to get behind this new moment we're in around kind of worker power, economic security? Well, I think a lot of foundations, number one, need to focus on not just researching workers as if they're an object, but actually going into the, the idea of how do we empower them. So into the experimentation, that the willingness to fail, all labs, all experiments are there to fail as well, right? So we have to kind of say, well, how do we build this, this, this innovation environment that is not a closed one. And I think here we can learn something from the open source community is how can we tap into these numerous networks, but really build on one another? How can I, for example, learn from what Chipo is doing in South Africa, which I really respect your work so, so deeply, but also say, you know, this is for young people. You know, we heard Christelle say that the union movement in Denmark has not really got a good grasp on young people. Are there some narratives? Is there language? Is there somehow we better can reach that generation who will be carrying our economies forward? So my first thing would be not focus on workers as an object, but a subject to dare experiment and to also stop being so shy to the trade union movement. There are many, many foundations who will not provide money directly to the union movement. 
why you see a lot of unions creating separate entities and labs and foundations and whatnots to, to sort of hide their true identity. This, I mean, this just has to stop. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely been in rooms where foundations have literally cut yeah. cut out the words uh, worker voice, worker power from proposals. Um, and so then what is it? It's kind of an offset market. Well, um, for me, it's they're buying a good conscience, right? Right. I mean, the, 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 the money we got to develop WeClock, it was a shoestring budget. It was $400,000 and it was for a year and a half. We never heard back from the foundation. You know, we went way above what we had promised them to do. We just promised to do sort of a prototype, but we've actually launched it now in, in Apple's test flight and on Android. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we never heard back from them. It was like it was like they so regretted giving us that money, which is tuppence in their thing, right? So we kind of took it as a success. But it just goes to show that that you know you, you can't just do lip service to this. We've got to commit to it. Fantastic, super helpful, and and something we'll bring up in the conversation later this week, just around how foundations can support union innovation in an authentic way. Um, (laughs) And so now I just want to move over, Leticia, you brought up some some wonderful points um, in terms of how the last year has really brought about this ripeness for change in terms of policy ideas around UBI, in terms of social care infrastructure. You know, I think so much has been made visible in terms of essential workers and just care infrastructure that we now have in the US. Um, an infrastructure bill where social care is being bundled into that for the first time. And I don't think that marrying would have happened had it not been for the pandemic. Um, can you share a bit more in terms of your observations around how, how we can move from some of these solutions that um, might have been developed in, as a crisis management response and think about them from, from more of a systemic embedding perspective? I was really, I, 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 I loved what... Christina said about the power of stories and how having a, a data analyst and then a designer to do what Chipo did with that map, you know, which is just uh, making a case and telling a powerful story. And I think that what we have now with the pandemic is the beginning of a story that we can continue, that we can pursue to make the case that a certain number of things are needed. So um, there's a case for UBI that can be made today. Yes, it works. We did it in 2020 and it's um, absolutely cushioned um, the impact of the crisis on workers in the US. And that could be expanded somewhere else. Um, We have a story Chipo mentioned demographic, uh, demographic evolutions. We have a story around that too. The she session is absolutely intertwined with our demographic challenges and evolutions. And if we want the world of tomorrow to be inclusive of women, um, there is a, a case to be made that childcare should be much, much more generous, expensive, broad. Um, I live in Germany now, and I was really shocked in 2020 how, you know, because schools were closed most of the most of the time, how everyone just simply relied on mothers. It was just taken for granted in such a way that I couldn't. Um, as a French person, couldn't compare to the decisions that had been made in France to keep schools open, uh, even though, yes, there were clusters in school in spite of what they say, but um, but it was a choice. It was a choice to support uh, female workers and mothers in particular that was made. And so we all have, we have this material now 
to continue on, continue telling stories to make a collective case uh, on the subject of childcare. I think there's huge momentum. And I hope that in Germany, when I, where I live now, uh, 2021 will be the year where, where they make progress and, and where school, you know, full, full-time schooling becomes more accessible because schooling is usually just half the day. So it's part-time, uh, part-time working mothers most of the time. Um, so I hope that, yeah, we can, um, you know, scale up by using the stories we have now. Wonderful. Thank you. And Chipa, I want to bring you in here as well, because, you know, you talked really powerfully about the pivot that Harambe Youth Accelerator made, moving from an entrepreneurial approach to more of a systemic approach. And I think this is what we hear again and again from so many future work innovators who might be overly attached to a product or a strategy or, you know, just a really um, bare bones operational budget. How, you know, what inspiration or lessons would you have for them, for people that are trying to make this transition from sort of just being that entrepreneurial figure to developing a more systemic approach? Uh, For you guys, what was, you know, was there an important mindset evolution that was a part of that that allowed you to, to be successful? Um, well, I mean, I think so. To be fair, we're 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 in the beginning of this transition, so um, we are. It's something that we realized as an organization, particularly over COVID, as we had to move away from in-person services. So previously, our office was a place where if you came in on any day of the week, there would be hundreds of young people coming in for sessions with like sandwiches because our previous study showed that if people eat in the morning, they perform for better, they perform better in their assessments. And so we were a completely hands-on contact operation. But as we hit the lockdown, the question was like, okay, where is our value now and how do we continue to improve the lives of young people and in some ways like that accelerated our process towards systems change thinking Um, and our CEO Mariana had such a good point about this in in a management meeting this week where she was like it's not that we're wedded to us being the solution or that we're wedded to the solution that we're we found right now we're wedded to this idea we're in love with the problem and with solving the problem And so if you're in love with the problem, then as it changes and as the solutions no longer fit, it's easy to move along and say, okay, this is what works now. Actually, maybe the service that we provided isn't the best fit anymore, or maybe we can do this. But if you're in love with the solution that you've created to the problem, it's really difficult as an organization to see when that no longer works. Um, And so I think that's like the big Harambee thing is like to be in love with the problem. And because we have such a huge challenge around youth employment in our country, it's quite an easy problem to be obsessed about. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Christina is giving you props for, for speaking poetry, which is great. Uh, want to bring in uh, Thorbin and Christelle just around the point of union innovation. You know, I think we're seeing a sort of revival, a new interest in unions here in the U.S. that we haven't seen for a long time, um, that progressives are sort of re-embracing the worker here, and that's becoming more you know, part of the agenda. And so just wondering um, what kind of innovations within unions that you're seeing that you're a part of, as well as, you know, how much inspiration are you taking from global best practice? You know, how how networked are you with, you know, what others are doing in other parts of the world um, and, and seeing sort of new emerging trends within the union innovation movement? I can go first. Uh, I want to pick up on the, how inspired we are from, 
other part of the con the, the world when we're doing innovation. We have quite a lot of support for innovation in unions here in Denmark. The unions are quite strong, as you know, which gives us a lot of possibilities. And we do have fundings in, 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 in HK, which is a huge plus because we do have the ability to do this, to fall in love with the problem, as you said before, Chibu, which is our main purpose here is just fall in love with the problem, not the solutions, which is very difficult, but it also means we, we do a lot of, of research, getting to understand our members and then experiment a lot. And with this, we are very inspired by how do others from the other side, for example, US, how do they, they experiment, for example, Google using a lot of this pre-totyping, which is a very fast way to, uh, to test a new uh, concept of solutions where you actually don't build the technicalities, you just do a, a quick uh, homepage and then you just show this is the concept, then we see how do people interact with this. And this is a quite new thing for us to do before we went all the way and we, we built the app, for example, and then we tested and we sent it out and then we hoped, oh, is anyone gonna use this? And this is very helpful for us to, to use these new tools, which are not new in U the US, but they are new to us. And I think that's a huge way, a huge important thing for us to be inspired by how do others do innovation. So we try to do partnerships. We try to do inspirational talks with everyone. So I'm going to contact every one of you afterwards because we want to learn from your setting and maybe it's not directly to, I can't translate your work to my work directly, but I can definitely learn from it and be inspired on how to rethink the way we approach our innovation in, within the union. Fantastic. And yeah, it's so much of what we're trying to do with this Good Work Guild uh, that we'll share the link to as well, but just, you know, reimagine the guild for sort of modern 21st century work and how we can bring innovators together around shared advocacy and sense making and failure and, you know, solidarity around the funding piece. Um, and also, you know, be inspired by different geographic contexts too. Um, I, I remember reading so many interesting, you know, papers at the start of the pandemic around, you know, the crisis of imagination and kind of maybe how the, you know, the pandemic has led to having to reimagine basic, basic services. So find that, find that uplifting somewhat. Uh, but Thorbin, want to allow you to come in here um, in terms of what you're seeing with, you know, new kinds of alliances and partnerships and innovations within the union movement. I think unions need to be open to new ideas all the time. And sometimes, especially for such a large union like the EG Metal, it's, it's difficult too, because as you said, we have more than 2 million members. I think we are the largest single union, at least in Europe. And we have in the automotive sector, the traditional workers, we have 80% of the people <clears throat> organized there. And that sometimes, of course, um, incorporates the danger that you lean back and think, well, we are, we are big, we are successful, we have collective agreements everywhere. And uh, so I, I think um, really to, to overcome um, <clears throat> some of this uh, traditions of feeling too great, I think it's important. Um, but then we've seen, of course, also in, in Germany that unions have been challenged for, for a long time. And I think that the revival you were talking about in the US, I think it started a bit earlier in, in Germany uh, during the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, because then we 
worked out some schemes like uh, Kurzarbeit, short-time work to keep people in the companies during a crisis, reducing working time, which actually also um, was then applied in this crisis and kept the unemployment numbers quite low in Germany and also allowed to overcome some of the shortcomings uh, that Tizia talked about, for example, in childcare. We could see from asking our members that <clears throat> without this reduction of working time, um, getting together family life and working life would have been not possible during, during the crisis because all the public institution infrastructure was not there any longer. Um, and of course, um, talking to uh, and reaching out to new groups of workers, not as objects, but as subjects, what Christina talked about, um, I think that is important too. And we've seen a lot of people organizing um, in fields, like I said, um, people working on platforms like YouTube or people uh, working, if I look at other sectors, um, for platforms uh, like uh, food delivery platforms, etc. We see a lot of action there. At the moment, there are some warehouses blocked of a delivery platform here in Berlin, and young people are, are moving there, not only the people um, working there, but, but helping, helping out. So we, you can see some spontaneous organization, and that can be picked up. We also uh, try to, to take off up the power of, um, of, of ratings, which is so important on apps and platforms, and to use it for good work when we tried to rate uh, platforms that are active on, on the German market and other organizations like the Fair Work Foundations in the UK is doing that for a lot of countries by now, both in the global north and the global south. And I think um, this is very inspiring to, to have ideas from, from other places and have an exchange. And um, I, I had the, the, um, personally the, the, the good experience of having a sabbatical before I took up the work I'm doing now. And that's, uh, gave me the possibilities to just look around the countries and, and talk to people. And I think this taking some time off and uh, opening your mind up, I think that is very important also for union officials to do that from time to time. Um, it's not easy because you have a lot of tasks uh, to do, but I think it's necessary. You cannot just stick to what you've been doing all the time. Wonderful, thank you. And we don't have that much more time today, uh, but just one final question for everyone, um, and then we'll close. But I know we've we've talked a bit about storytelling throughout this conversation, and just want to hear from you as we think about you know curating future conversations. What are the conversations that you're really hungry to be having? I think maybe everyone feels a little bit of fatigue around pandemic dissection. Um, you know, so it, what are the conversations that you're really kind of hungry for these days? And also, who are the people that you're not really in conversation with? Kind of where are the gaps in your own social social network um, you know, or clusters, like who, who are the people that you would really love to be learning from that you're not currently in conversation with? And we can just take a second to think about that for a moment, unless someone has wants to come in quickly. Yeah. Uh, happy to there because it was one of the points I was wanting to raise is that I think one of the good things we did in the development of WeClock was cre to create a tech advisory board who, who was, whose members were, you know, activist technologists who were professors of ethics or moral or philosophy, but in the tech world, because one of our problems in the sort of our world is we simply do not know what is technically possible. 
not necessarily morally, not necessarily, but technically. And I think, you know, when we're building a minimum lovable product, as Christelle was talking about, and all of these things, you know, we can build within the narrow imagination we have, but what if all of this is a possibility, but we just don't know? So there, I think this would be my key recommendation is I want far more uh, conversation between tech activists and there's a growing and very strong community of them, of, of hackers and developers and so on and so forth. And um, the more sort of uh, uh, entrepreneurs in the sense of the values of the world of work and workers, um, that's absolutely key. Wonderful, so, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I think, I could completely agree to that. And that's what we're trying to do. We do um, regularly with the German trade unions, we do so-called union hacks, where we have um, people from the tech world and confront them with the issues we have and um, let them um, find out and develop new solutions. And there are probably solutions we would never have imagined on the boardrooms of a trade unions ourselves. And it's probably good for them to sort of graft a conscience into their work and help kind of wrestle that tech culture of Silicon Valley towards something more purposeful. Um, so I can see the value exchange on both sides. Uh, yeah, if I can, if I can jump in here, um, I think like part of the conversation that we're looking for. So it's funny that the team that I'm actually a part of is called the impact and storytelling team. And so at Harambi, we have the sense about like how important it is to tell a story in a way that just like, not only like communicate, like not only says what's happening, but communicates in a way that resonates. And I think when we think about the future of work, I know at least that I struggle to think what that future looks like. And Letitia, as you mentioned, the, the she session and like a world of work, which includes women in like a fundamental way and includes the way that like women's lives happen, you know, because of biology sometimes. And just like, what does that ideal world of work look like? Especially because our context is one where there's so many young people, there are more young people coming. A lot of them don't have access to skills, don't have access to education, don't have access to the kind of basic infrastructure, which would you know, that, that, that I'm thinking about when I think of like the future of work, tech and automation. So it's like, what does that work, what does that world look like? And what does it look like for all of us inclusively? So the people who have those ideas, I want to talk to them. I have no idea who they are, but like those guys, like those people that bring them along. Amazing. Great. Thank you. Others, um, Leticia, yeah. Yeah, just, just one more word on the subject of storytelling. My, my feeling is that there is um, a lot of resentment that's directly related to work and work conditions. But instead of fueling unions and worker activism, it fuels populism and just resentment. So it doesn't it doesn't translate to a collective movement to improve working conditions. And so the people that I'd like to talk to is those who feel that resentment, but by definition, they're hard to reach because they don't go, they don't, perhaps sometimes they don't even know that the problem is work and that worker activism could be the solution. Or maybe I'm wrong. And in any case, I would like to talk to them and, and see how we can bring them along because that's the political story of our time how resentment fuels populism instead of worker activism 
That's a great point. How we sort of redirect the hose of resentment towards worker activism and away from populism. And I think we've all been living in the aftermath of that, you know, for the past 10 years. Um, fantastic. And Christelle, any, uh, Reflections from you, last parting thoughts, um, last parting or thoughts. any any hungering desires in terms of people <laughs> that you would want to be in future conversation with? Um, I think I want to be actually our members, which is the easy answer, I know. But just to put it in perspective, like I think with all this talk about technologies, emerging technologies, let's... let's um, figure out how can we use these in a new way. I think one of our main principles is that we don't use technology just to use technology. So like the same as falling in love with the problem, we need to fall in love with our members and their needs and not just use the technology just because it's it's there. It's not always useful. So um, I actually want to talk even more with our members to get out there and also maybe the ones we don't reach normally, because these are the ones with the problems maybe they haven't noticed um, themselves. And these are the problems I want to connect with so I can help them as well, not only the ones speaking up. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, thanks to everyone. Sadly, that's all the time uh, we've got for today. So we'll, we'll wrap up. Before we close, I'd just like to thank our colleagues at Autodesk Foundation for their support and partnership in this work. If you'd like to find out more about the Good Work Guild, upcoming events in the Future of Work Summit, and how you can get involved, please do check out the links in the YouTube chat and across the RSA's social media channels. Finally, most importantly, thank you to our terrific, brilliant panel. Uh, Thorben, thank you for being our token male on this panel. Um, but really just want to thank Leticia, Thorben, Christelle, Chipo, and Christina uh, for your wonderful reflections. It's, it's definitely led me to feel really energized today. And I think we'll kick off this week-long conversation uh, around the summit wonderfully. Thanks, everyone, for watching and take care. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.